Uh, I have a bad habit of beginning messages, uh, complaining about the passages of Scripture that Pastor Chris gives me to, uh, to preach. And uh, I just want to say this morning, after he uh, preached on Sodom and Gomorrah uh, last week, uh, with uh, both grace and truth, and uh, I'm not going to complain today. I think he took the tough one uh, last week, and uh, am grateful for, uh, uh, for him doing so. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 20 uh, this week, and I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles there. Uh, as I said, last week was uh, a sermon on a lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment there. Uh, before we get to Genesis chapter 20, uh, we do need to, to kind of fit back into Abraham's life. Last week, the focus was on Abraham's nephew, Lot. Uh, but now we're back to Abraham. And uh, if you'll recall, in Genesis chapter 18, uh, Abraham was visited by God. Uh, and God did something that he rarely does. Uh, he put a time frame on a promise uh, that he had given. Uh, he said, within a year, Abraham, uh, you... Uh, your wife will be with child, and you will have uh, the promised child um, uh, who will be a great nation uh, someday. At the end of Genesis 18, Abraham uh, negotiates, he bargains uh, for the innocent or potential innocent people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, he bargains with God for them and his concern for them. In Genesis 19, last week, we talked about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and then we come uh, to Genesis chapter 20. Uh, in chapter 21, we're going to read about the birth of that promised child, uh, but in Genesis chapter 20, we read, uh, from there, uh, from observing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. You know, as I read those, uh, uh, to be honest, there's 21 words uh, in verse number two. Uh, it probably seems somewhat familiar to you if you have been with us through our, uh, through our series in Genesis. Uh, this story of Abraham traveling, uh, this time to uh, a city by the name of Gerar, uh, back in Genesis chapter 12. It was in Egypt. Uh, and while traveling in a foreign land, claiming that his wife was his sister, uh, once again, his fears putting Sarah in danger. Um, and until God intervened uh, to protect, because what God does is he intervenes to protect those who are vulnerable and in danger. Um, they, Sarah was in danger. and was taken into the, uh, the home of a king um, as their wife. And until God intervened to rescue them, they were in danger. Uh, this seems very, very familiar. Uh, in fact, there are some people who are critical of the Bible who say, who see in this similar story a sign that the Bible is really a collection of, of ancient mythologies, uh, stories that are told over and over again, kind of like uh, the stories of Robin Hood or King Arthur. Uh, and if you ever read those stories, you know that sometimes the details change over time and based on who uh, the teller is of those stories. And, and some people, when they read the Bible, they say, you know what, this is a collection of one story that over time the, the details changed and uh, eventually it was put in writing, which kind of formalized the structure of them. And, and whoever first put this, this story into writing uh, didn't recognize that it was really one story uh, in two different forms. Uh, Derek Kidner, Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, writes, 
Critical scholars reckon that this story is a duplicate of Genesis 12. Uh, ultimately, because of its similarities and on the ground that a man does not repeat a lapse of this kind. Hmm. Genesis chapter 20. Is it a simply a repeated form of a same story? Uh, personally, I find repeated failure uh, to not be unusual in the least. Um, my wife and I have had the same argument approximately 283 times uh, over the course of our lives. Uh, it starts something like this. Uh, she makes a suggestion for something we'll do and asks my opinion. Um, I give my opinion, and it's very different than what she wants to do. Um, somewhere in the middle, I say, okay, whatever you want, that's fine. And then it ends with me silent and feeling controlled and her feeling hurt and somewhat manipulated. We do that a lot. My, wife, my, my daughter's mine because she heard it yesterday, actually. That, that same uh, argument. Now, now maybe you say, well, that's, that's a small thing. That's marriage. Everybody does that. And I said, well, maybe, maybe the big things, the big things. You know, people don't make the same mistake twice. Uh, I decided to look in the Bible for a list of, of what some of those big things are. And I, I turned my attention to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, in, chap in verse 19, it talks about what the works of the flesh are in contrast with the fruit uh, of the Spirit. Uh, and I read these works of the flesh, and I said, well, how many of these uh, potentially could get repeated uh, by someone? Um, I'll read just a few. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Strife, fits of anger, envy, drunkenness. Do you see any repeaters in there? Uh, that someone could fall into again and again and again? You know what, the problem with sin is that as destructive, as painful, uh, as death-bringing as it is, it dresses very well. Uh, it, sin puts on a, a cloak over the top of the disease and decay, uh, the, the damage that it causes, and it cloaks itself in reasons and rationalizations uh, that try to convince us that what happened before won't happen again uh, in the next time. This time, uh, it won't be so bad. This time, I'll get close, but I won't get caught. This time, it will really be worth it. That's the way sin operates. Maybe it's not just sin. Uh, in John chapter 8, we read that Satan uh, is the father of lies. Uh, he spreads lies about sin. In 2 Corinthians 11, he's described as an angel of light. Uh, and what he does is he says, you know what, a, a sin that has caught us before, well, this next time, maybe it will be different. Uh, that is what we find in Abraham's life. Uh, this morning... Uh, I'd like to look at Genesis chapter 20, specifically with a mind of looking at the lies that Satan tells or sin tells us uh, so that we can avoid uh, those lies, uh, but ultimately we'll have to face the question of how do we respond when we fall into sin again and again. Uh, well, we'll begin this, this chapter, it breaks into four parts. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, we see Abraham failing Sarah again. His fears put Sarah in danger, just as it had 
uh, a few pages ago in our, in our Bibles. Uh, in, his lives, in his life, 25 years have passed uh, since Genesis chapter 12. Uh, he is now 100 and Sarah is 90. Uh, and still, uh, he's peddling the same lie to protect himself, uh, even as it puts someone even more innocent in danger, uh, Sarah, uh, and ultimately uh, the people uh, of Gerar. In uh, chapters 3 through 7, we see God confronting Abimelech, uh, the king. Uh, In verses 8 through 13, we see Abimelech confronting Abraham. Uh, And then the chapter concludes uh, with Abimelech, Abimelech doing what is necessary uh, to make things right. Uh, Well, let's continue the story in in verses 3 through 7. It says, uh, after Abimelech took uh, Sarah, uh, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, uh, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that what you have done, or that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. In this, we see God's confrontation in the form of, in a dream, of Abimelech. Uh, He threatens uh, Abimelech with danger. And and to be honest, I think as we read this, it raises some questions in our minds. Uh, One question it answers is, who is really at fault? Uh, Is it Abraham uh, or Abimelech? And we'll come back to Abraham uh, shortly. Uh, But but Abraham, he he seems to be more at fault, but Abimelech is the one who is confronted and threatened with severe judgment uh, from God. Uh, So one question we have is Abraham or Abimelech. Secondly, we ask uh, I think we ask ourselves, is, is Abimelech really innocent or is he guilty? He didn't really know what he was getting himself in. Uh, I could see him saying, how could I have known? I certainly didn't mean to. Uh, in his own words, he said, I did this with integrity in my heart. Uh, he calls himself innocent and his people innocent. And he said, God, why would you judge those who are innocent? Uh, But still, God threatens Abimelech with significant penalty for the action of taking uh, someone who is not his wife. You know, as I've really pondered that this week, um, I realize that whenever we do an action, there's actually two components. There's what our intention is, that's the aim or the purpose that we hope to accomplish in our actions, and the action itself, what is done, what is completed, uh, what is carried out. And in uh, theologians really struggle, uh, and there's a lot of writing on uh, the intention versus the action and their importance of it. Uh, there are some who say that if something is unintentional, uh, that it's unknowing, if it's done in ignorance, uh, are we accountable for that action? Are we accountable for something that if our intentions were pure but the action is wrong, are we truly accountable? 
You know, as I read scripture, I think there is an answer to that question. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6 uh, is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is confronting uh, the teaching of the Pharisees. And he says uh, in 6, beginning in verse 1, uh, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Uh, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Uh, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret uh, will reward you. Uh, We'll just stop right there, but uh, this chapter continues talking about prayer and fasting. And in each instance, God says, there are people who will do righteous things, but their intention is not to, to, uh, to give or to pray or to fast for a right purpose, uh, but rather to bring glory to themselves, to be noticed, to be recognized for it. Uh, and in each case, God says, uh, if your intent uh, was to receive glory for your actions, that glory that you receive is paid in full. That's all the credit that you get for it. Do not look for a reward from your Father uh, who is in heaven. Uh, Your intentions matter. Um, A good action done out of a bad motive is not righteous. Uh, Intentions matter. Well, what about actions? What about actions done uh, without uh, without ill intent? Uh, One example uh, that my mind was drawn to is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David uh, is seeking to establish a place of worship. Uh, for Israel. Uh, And in doing so, he's moving the Ark of the Covenant uh, to his capital city that he'd established in Jerusalem. Uh, Unfortunately, along the way, they must have forgotten the rules that God had prescribed for moving the the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, And they loaded it onto a a cart pulled by oxen uh, rather than on poles that were to be carried by uh, Levites. Uh, As they traveled along the way, uh, Scripture says that the, the oxen stumbled and the, the ark was shaking back and forth and in danger of falling out. And uh, a man by the name of Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark. Uh, but God had said the ark is holy. Uh, it is completely holy. And God judged Uzzah uh, for this action of touching uh, that which he had no right uh, to touch. Uh, in this instance, we see a case where, uh, where a person's actions, uh, someone's intentions are good, but their action is something that God had forbidden. Uh, To me, it's very similar to what we read uh, of King Abimelech. His intentions uh, are good, uh, but the action to take the wife of another person was against God's law. The reality is that intentions matter and actions matter. In this case, Abimelech's intentions were not at fault. Uh, He didn't know that she was committed to another And in one sense, God even affirmed this innocence. He said, I protected you because your intentions were pure, uh, but your actions, especially if they had been consummated in relations with his wife, would have been adultery, sin. And God promised punishment even by death because God defines sin and he prescribes it. 
Actions matter apart from our intentions, and our intents matter apart from our actions. You know, the problem we run to is that sin, sin plays the game both ways. I remember those clothes that sin puts on to dress itself up, to justify itself, to rationalize uh, its purpose. Uh, sin will play the intent game and, and will, will say to us, you know what, I didn't mean to, so don't judge me. Uh, I didn't mean to say unkind things, and so uh, regardless of whether they are hurtful, I, you can't blame me for that action. Uh, sin says, I never meant to get sucked into that relationship that was inappropriate. Uh, it was not my intent, uh, so I really can't be blamed in that case. Uh, sin loves to, to justify itself based on my intentions, uh, except in those cases where it would rather justify us because of the action irregardless of the intention. Now, it was just in my head. I really didn't do anything. I, I was thinking it, but, but I didn't say it. If the actions uh, stay in our mind, we say, you know what, I, I can't be held accountable. We'll, we'll play the intention and action game on both sides. Uh, both of these rationalizations uh, undermine what the Bible says about sin. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus tells us uh, that to lust uh, is, is the same as committing adultery. Uh, the sin in the mind is significant and puts us under judgment before God, as does anger uh, towards others. Um, the reality is our intentions matter to God and our actions matter to God. His desire is for holiness. You know, this is really bared out, borne out uh, even in the Old Testament. You know, sometimes we think that uh, our, in our modern days, we really invented uh, the idea of psychology, of understanding people's thoughts and, and the reasons why they do things and the underlying purposes and intents. Um, our subconscious mind, we really think of that as a, a somewhat modern uh, invention. Uh, but if you read through Psalms uh, with your eyes open, uh, you read words like Psalm 1914, uh, where the psalmist prays, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, Psalm 26, 1 and 2 says, Declare me innocent, O Lord, for I have enacted with integrity. There's my actions. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart uh, as well. Not just actions, but my motives, my heart. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, uh, the psalmist says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, the psalmist recognized that there's something going on below the surface, and my intentions and my actions both matter to God. Uh, even in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, uh, Paul says, uh, you know what, as he's defending himself before the uh, Corinthians, he says, you know what, my actions, my conscience is clear in the way that I have conducted myself with you. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, but that doesn't make me innocent. Ultimately, God is the one who judges. Our actions and our intents both matter to God, and his desire is for holiness. And when we convince ourselves uh, by passing it off as, I only thought it, I didn't do it, uh, or I did it, uh, but I didn't mean it, there was no intent there, uh, we're falling short of the holiness that God uh, God expects. Uh, and so God 
the definer of right and wrong, uh, says Abimelech, uh, what you have done is endangering your life. You have took a man, another man's wife. Uh, fortunately for Abimelech, he responds. Uh, in some ways, there's a justifying himself, uh, but as we continue this, we're going to see Abimelech was recognized. Uh, even a person who had not experienced the promises of God, that God had not made a covenant with the way that he had with Abraham, uh, he recognized that his actions were indeed wrong, and he takes what steps are necessary to make it right. Uh, he begins by confronting Abraham. This is verses 8 through 13. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. He called all of his servants and he told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, uh, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Uh, says Abraham, Your sin in lying to me uh, created this opportunity for me to fall into a great sin. He recognizes his own actions would not have been pure and right. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. The unbelieving king has to confront the keeper of the promise. What a humbling uh, rebuke. Uh, God sent an unrighteous king to confront the man who had received his promise, had been visited by God, uh, to point out his fall. Uh, it reminds me of 2 Chronicles 35, 22, uh, where a king of Egypt uh, speaks to King Josiah, and God says he was speaking, he was the mouth of God, is the word, that even this foreign king had a message for you. Uh, or perhaps it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, where, where God, or Paul says, in, in rebuking the Corinthian church, he said, there is sin in your church uh, that even pagans would be ashamed of. Uh, even unbelievers recognize this as sin, but you refuse to do so. To do so. Uh, you know, in some ways, uh, as we read this, we feel maybe Abraham got off easy. God calls him a prophet. He says he needs to pray for you, uh, even though his actions are the ones that cause this uh, cascade uh, of sin. Uh, but Abraham is in a dangerous place uh, when those who do not believe recognize your actions as wrong when you don't. He's in a very dangerous place. Uh, and Abimelech confronts him. Uh, well, as we see Abraham's response, we see two more rationalizations, uh, two more uh, statements that, that Abraham used to justify uh, his actions, his sin. Uh, the first is fear. Uh, Pastor Chris spoke about this quite a bit uh, when he preached the sermon uh, on Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Abraham feared for his life and in doing so, put someone else's life in danger. Uh, he feared man more than he trusted God, that God could protect him by living in the truth. And in doing so, he endangers Sarah, uh, he endangers Abimelech, and he endangers his people. You know what, economists talk about something called opportunity cost. 
an opportunity cost is the, the idea that if, I, that if I take one opportunity, I am foregoing the opportunity to take another, make another choice. Uh, invest my time or my money uh, into one business in the economic sense, then, then I'm missing out on other places where I could invest that time or money. And so I have to choose wisely um, uh, what opportunities I take advantage of. Uh, you know, Abraham, uh, I think, suffers from a loss of opportunity here. Uh, he thinks he's protecting himself. That's his principal fear, that I will not be safe. And so he chooses a, a course uh, that he thinks will keep him safe and will be the best course. Uh, but in doing so, uh, his choice for self-protection cost him the opportunity for godly witness. Fortunately for him, God would not be thwarted. You know, the same is true for us. We have fears. We say, you know what, I, I choose this because I, I fear what will happen. Uh, if, I, if I say this, what will be the response of other people? Uh, if I speak up for Christ or share my faith or testimony of how significant it is uh, Christ is in my life, uh, that someone might be offended. What we forget is that when we choose that opportunity for self-protection, uh, we're losing out on countless other opportunities for God to work and God to act. Uh, God would not be thwarted uh, in this case. God said, I will still protect Sarah in this. Uh, but he points out uh, that Abraham is confronted in this uh, by a pagan king to say, your fears uh, are putting others in danger. Um, Abraham's first defense was fear. His second, uh, I'll call the fine print. Uh, Abraham says, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. Uh, and she became my wife. Um, the impression, uh, or the statement there, we would call that that Sarah was his half-sister. Uh, in some ways, this is disturbing to us uh, as well. Uh, we don't do that uh, anymore. Uh, there are laws against it in uh, 49 states, actually, uh, is my understanding, um, that, this is, that this is not right. Uh, how can this be uh, in Scripture? Um, uh, to be honest, I've heard different theories. Uh, I've heard uh, from a, a genetic standpoint that it's possible uh, that the problem with close relatives marrying is because the uh, decay and mutations in our DNA, when they interact with each other, uh, that's when they create more problems. And is it possible in this early, uh, this early, uh, shortly after creation, relatively shortly after creation, that there was less damaged DNA and so there was less likely to be complications as a result? To be honest, I don't know. Uh, there, are those, uh, there are those who teach genetics here. Uh, Jill, do you teach genetics? She'll be doing a lecture afterwards uh, on the explanation of that. I gave you... 20 minutes warning, Jill, thank you. Uh, I don't know if that is, uh, that is indeed the case. Uh, to be honest, this is the only place that we read. Uh, in the earlier genealogy of Abraham, uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't give any detail about Sarah's lineage. Uh, but Abraham, in this, he sees, uh, he sees, you know what? I'm not really lying. I'm not really lying. There is a sense if this is true. Uh, probably the husband and wife relationship was more significant than the sister relationship, uh, but he chooses to, uh, to forget about this. I call this the fine print defense. Uh, if, you look at it, uh, if you look at it this way and you squint your eyes just right, it doesn't seem to be wrong. 
Uh, the Pharisees in Jesus' days were experts at this. Uh, in Matthew 23, verse 23, he says, you know, Jesus says, uh, you even tithe uh, your spices, your cumin, uh, the spices that you receive, not just money, but anything that you have, you tithe it because you want to obey the way that you want to, to be pure uh, by the letter of the law. Uh, but he says, in doing so, you have neglected the more important parts of the law. You have neglected those. You rather ought to have kept the big things and the little things. As a result, the fine print uh, is no defense. You know, people don't do that today. Uh, well, well, maybe they did when I was a kid. Uh, and a kid, sometimes they do. Because, Like when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to go to the movie theater uh, because the movie theater could lead other people into sin. But at home, you could watch almost anything that you wanted. Um, as long as it was on one of those, uh, that modern technology, VH, VHS tapes. Is that what they called them uh, back then? I'm speaking to my daughters in here. Uh, she, you know what a VHS tape is. Uh, you know, we'd never try to define sin uh, real fine to justify our actions, to say, you know, by the fine print, I think that this is okay. Uh, we'd never we'd say, well, we, I'm only going to go this far, and then over that line, that would be, that would be too much. But I'm going to stay as close to the line as possible because I've examined the fine print, and that's where sin begins uh, and righteousness ends. We'd never use the fine print uh, as a defense. Or would God say, uh, what he said to the Pharisees. Uh, the law can be summed up in one thing. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart and soul and mind. This is the first commandment. Would he say, you know, in our desire to, to, to examine the fine print, to say, you know what, uh, you know, if you look at it just right, I'm really not doing anything wrong. Would God say, you know what, is that action fitting of someone who loves me with their whole heart and their whole soul and their whole mind? That is the question. Uh, not the fine print, it's the bold stuff at the top that's really important uh, in this case. Uh, for Abraham, uh, perhaps he could justify and say, man, by the letter of the law, I didn't really lie, uh, but God said your actions were not fitting for someone who loves me with their whole heart and their whole soul uh, and their whole mind. Uh, the fine print is, is irrelevant. Uh, fear, fine print, intent, actions. A uh, sin takes every opportunity to justify itself uh, to lead us back into sin. Uh, and perhaps as you hear this, you say, you know what? I don't know if I could do that. Uh, holiness is too hard. Purity impossible. Obedience is unrealistic. Look at Abraham, uh, the father uh, of God's nation, uh, the keeper uh, of God's promise, the holder of God's promise. He couldn't do it. He's falling into the same trap over and over again. Uh, and perhaps this is a, a fifth rationalization that we use to, to dress up and justify our choices. Sometimes we just want to say, I failed before, why even try again? Why even try? It seems humble uh, when we say that. Uh, but ultimately it's a giving up and it misses the point uh, of God's work in the life of Abraham. Holiness is hard. Purity is impossible. Uh, obedience, it's unrealistic. But God forgives. God forgave uh, Abraham. Uh, repentance is possible. In Romans 
uh, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, it tells us something that, that seems so spiritual uh, and seems so easy. Uh, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was not justified because he was better. Uh, and it's so hard for us to grasp that. Uh, we think that, that the folks that we read in the Bible, they were a cut above. Uh, you know, and it, the reality is it's not just that those heroes of the Bible have feet of clay. Uh, it's not just, you know, we say it sometimes, well, they make mistakes just like us. It's deeper and harder than that. Abraham was justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Really. He was justified because he trusted God's promise, not because he was better. And so could you, and so could I. Uh, we could be justified not because we come from a good family or have a good job or are productive citizens or a little bit smarter than the guy next to us. Our justification comes because we true choose to put faith apart from the works of the law. Our faith for Abraham and God's promise of a son and a nation and a people, uh, for us a promise that comes in Christ what he has offered through his death and his resurrection. Uh, Ray Ortland says, uh, our problem is that we either proudly believe that we are too good to be judged or we proudly believe that we are too bad to be saved. Let me read that one more time. We either proudly believe that we're too good to be judged. I'm better than a lot of people. I'm too good. I, God couldn't really, he couldn't really be mad at me. Or we proudly believe that we're too bad to be saved. Uh, in both instances, God says, no, my holy standard has not changed. You don't measure up. There's no room for pride. Uh, but what there is is an invitation to come and put your faith in me, and I will give you a righteousness that comes from Christ and apply it to your account uh, and receive you on the basis of his work and not your own. There's a ju justification that comes by faith, not by our works. Abraham needed it because he was a sinner, not just in little things, uh, but in big things. We don't read a lot about Abraham's repentance in here. In, in verses 14 through 18, the focus is more on Abimelech and his actions. It says, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Uh, he gives gifts to affirm uh, that he is concerned about doing what is right. Uh, to Sarah, he says, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife. Uh, in this, we see God stepping in where, uh, where the men uh, failed in this instance. Uh, but we also see Abimelech doing what is necessary to make things right. Uh, because faith, faith that is the avenue for justification based on Christ's righteousness and not my own, uh, it comes uh, when we begin with humble confession, uh, an admission that things were not done right. Abimelech uh, uh, admits that it was not right for him to take his wife, to take Abraham's wife. 
And secondly, he had an eagerness to make things right. Uh, For Abimelech, there was a cost involved in that. Uh, But he was willing to pay that cost because faith is humble and it seeks to make things right, whatever the cost. And thirdly, uh, faith when confronted with sin. Uh, I'll use the words of, uh, of Romans 13, 14, uh, where it says uh, to, uh, actually turn over to Romans 13, 14. Romans 13, 14. This is a key verse when we talk about repeated uh, sin. Romans 13, verse 14. Uh, Paul writes, uh, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, rather than uh, previously he had talking about walking, uh, walking in the light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Faith, true faith, when confronted with sin, uh, even repeated sin, humbly confesses it desires to make things right and then it makes uh, no provision for the flesh. Uh, If you confess but are still maintaining a trail to that sin, uh, keeping up that trail to get back to it, It's not real repentance if there's still a plan to go there again. No provision for the flesh makes, I'm not providing that path anymore to indulge what I know is wrong. Instead, uh, I'm making a path to walk in the light in obedience to Christ. Uh, This is the response of true faith. And here is the amazing, amazing thing. That regardless of whether the sin has has been committed once or twice, whether that we've fallen again and again, uh, the Father stands with his arms open wide and saying, when you have a true faith response, forgiveness is always possible. This is not an excuse to return to sin, and there's always that danger uh, when preaching a message like this. When we look at the life of Abraham and we say, Abraham, uh, God made a promise to him, not based on his righteousness, but by God's choice. Abraham believed God and it was considered, it was counted as righteousness. And ultimately the righteousness of Christ was ascribed uh, to his account. Uh, Forgiveness, unity with God. Uh, It came to him not based on his, but not based on his works, uh, but on his faith. And the same offer is made uh, to us. If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. And if we're justified by works, we have something to boast about. Uh, But Scripture says righteousness comes to those who respond in faith uh, to God's promises. Forgiveness is possible, uh, regardless of how often uh, we fall.